Please stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. A reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 12. <clears throat> and Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and del delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over, over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, 
which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done, this, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, before I get started, um, I just wanted to take a moment and express my appreciation to all of you and to Westgate, um, especially to Brandon and Travis and Bruce and Julie. Um, just for the last several months getting to work here and be a part of the team, um, it's been a great opportunity for me to learn and, and get some experience ministering in the church. And I know this is a, a key part to Westgate, um, investing in in the kingdom beyond Westgate, um, I want you to know that that's, that's something that you've done in letting me uh, be here for the last few months, and um, as I move on to, to what the Lord has next, um, I just wanted to, yeah, say thanks. Um, but, yeah, so our text this morning um, is from 1 Samuel, and Travis started us off last week, um, and we're going through this mini-series in 1 Samuel, looking at this idea of the king that we need. And Travis opened us in, in 1 Samuel 8, where the Israelites demanded that Samuel give them a king um, to rule over them. And, and Samuel was resistant to this idea because it wasn't, it wasn't because asking for a king was the wrong thing, but because he knew where their hearts were, that their hearts had strayed from God, and that they were actually rejecting God in their request for a king. And so chapter 8, it ends somewhat surprisingly with, with God giving, giving them a king. He consents to give them what they demand, even though they were sinful and asking for it. And so we're going to keep this in our rearview mirror as we move forward into chapter 12. We're going to keep that in mind as, as the context that we're in, but as we move into chapter 12, we see that this is Samuel's final address to the people as their leader. It's kind of his, his farewell speech as, as the nation is transitioning from the theocracy, which is ruled by judges, into a monarchy, which is now going to be ruled by kings, it's this transition from Samuel as leader to Saul as the king. And so this is his, his final address, his, his final goodbye, his swan song, his parting words, as he gives way to this new day in Israel's history. And it's significant, right? The final words of, of an outgoing leader, these are really important words, right? They're the chance for, for him to leave a lasting impression in the minds of the people. We'll, 
We'll hear this next week when Brandon gives his final sermon here as, as lead pastor of Westgate. And I know many of you are, are excited to, to hear what he has to say next week. And I know he's been really thinking a lot about what he wants to, what encouragements and, and exhortations he, he wants to leave you all with. So, but these, we know the last words are lasting words. They're, they're impactful. They're meaningful. Um, and this is what Samuel has before him here in our text. He's given these last words before Saul becomes the king. And interestingly, he starts off in the first five verses by exonerating himself. He's like, hey guys, I'm, I, I haven't done you any wrong, right? He's like, testify against me. If I've, if I've taken your ox, if I've taken your donkey, tell me. And they have, they have nothing to say against him. His name is free from scandal. He's been faithful to do the job that he's been called to do for the time that he's been called to do it. And, and his character's been above reproach. They have no reason not to now listen to him. Because he's going to give them a pretty strong rebuke. And here he is, like, setting the stage for, hey, you have nothing against me, so I have credence to say these hard words to you. And so this cleared up, he, he shifts to the meat of his message. The spotlight's not on him. It's going to be on God. It's not going to be like a, a typical maybe Hall of Fame induction speech where an athlete gets up and he talks about how great he is and how his career has just been full of accomplishments and, and how many championships he's won and records he's broken. It's, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be all about Samuel. He shifts the focus to God. And so it's not about Samuel. It's not about their new king. It's about God. And as I've been studying through this text, I've been trying to figure out how to kind of break it down and outline it. And I kind of, I realized Samuel, Samuel's kind of following our, the classic sermon outline these days, three points. So I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to go for three points because I think that's what Samuel's doing. So figure, why not do the same? So there's three things that Samuel's trying to communicate to Israel that we can also be encouraged by today. So first, God has been the faithful king. God has been the faithful king. We see this in verses 6 through 12. For the people of Israel, their, their circumstances had gotten really crazy recently. They had this new threat from the king of the Ammonites come and try to wage war with them. And so they're, they're in this frenzy. They're asking for a king. There's this battle going on, and they're caught up in the swirl of their present moment. And in, and in the whirlwind of life, their fears get the best of them, and they, they were unable to see anything but, was right, but what was right in front of them. And so right away in his speech, Samuel says, take a step back, slow down, reflect, remember. Remember the mighty things that God has done. Their circumstances were telling them to panic, telling them that they should doubt God and to look elsewhere for hope, for security, for deliverance. But Samuel reminded them that, that some things can only be found in God and nowhere else. They were thinking that they could find hope in something else, in this new king. But Samuel says, take a moment. Consider God. Consider how he has been your help in the past. Consider how he has been faithful. And he starts this in verse 6. He says, remember the Exodus? Remember when God's people were slaves in Egypt? What happened then? Remember, God raised up Moses and Aaron, and he used them to lead the people out of their bondage and into this special relationship with God through a covenant. God has only always been righteous on their behalf. He's always been faithful to them. He's been a true hope, a perfect security, even when the circumstances look bleak. Do you remember how impossible and dark things were in Egypt? He says, God had no problem taking care of that. 
But then what happened? We see in verse 9 that the people forgot God. Even after seeing the provision that God had worked, seeing his majesty in this, this mighty deed, they, they turned away from him. But in spite of their unfaithfulness, the unfaithfulness of the people, God didn't abandon them. He didn't turn away from them. He remained faithful. And Samuel recounts some of the cycles from the era of the judges there and how, Israel, and how every time Israel found themselves in dire need, God rescued them by raising up a leader. He talks about Sisera, the Midianites, the Philistines, which they battled with several times, the Moabites. He only named a few of them here. There's, there's many more. But each time that the people, although they had been unfaithful to God, he raised up a servant and rescued them through these people. He raised up people like Gideon, who the text calls Drubabal. Um, that's his challenging name. So Gideon, Barak, he raised up Deborah, Jephthah, even Samuel himself as the last of judges. And through these men and women, God delivered his people from their enemies, from the surrounding fears and circumstances and of darkness and hopelessness. Every single time they cried out to God, God answered them. He came to their rescue. Every single time. God has been faithful. So when this new threat came about in the form of Nahash, king of the Ammonites, instead of the Israelites thinking, who's this guy? Who's this guy who thinks he's going to get the best of God after all these others have failed? Instead of knowing that once again God would deliver them, if only they called out to him for help. And instead of crying out to God to save them, they cried out for a king. They saw this threat and they worried about their safety, their security, where their protection would come from, and they abandoned their true yet unseen hope. And they sought hope in a visible person that they thought would protect them. And so they asked for a king, a leader, instead of relying on God, who they ought to have known through experience would save them. At this critical moment, they reject the only one who can actually save them for another who can do nothing unless God helps them. And so Samuel is telling them here that the threat, this, this threat in front of them, it's nothing new. It's nothing greater than what God can handle, than what God has handled in the past. And he reminds them that they can trust God. They can look back. They can remember his faithfulness, how he has been their hope throughout all time for his people, how salvation and safety, security, they've always come from God, how God has always been their faithful king. But this isn't just something that Israelites do, is it? This is, this is something that happens to us as well. We have hope in God until we find ourselves in some circumstances that seem bleak. We find ourselves, until we find ourselves in a situation that maybe we don't understand or that we, we can't see God, we're not sure where he is. And we kind of lose our bearings like the Israelites do. We seek deliverance in other places. We put our hope in other things instead of God. And we allow our circumstances to dictate our faith instead of allowing our faith to dictate how we view our circumstances. The Israelites, they were looking to a person, a ruler, a king for their hope. But what is it that we run to when things don't make sense, when our circumstances are dark? What is it that you turn to when you're not sure where God is? When you look around and you think to yourself, this doesn't look good. When you can't see a way forward, what is it that you run to? Maybe in this pastoral transition, your hope is set on finding the right and perfect new pastor who's going to lead Westgate to bigger and, and greater heights. And this is a good thing to desire. This is a good thing to pray for, right? We want a faithful pastor. But our hope is in Jesus. 
who is the shepherd of his church and the one head of the church. Or maybe as you look at the brokenness of our country and our world, your hope is in, the, in a new leader who can, who can set things right, who can change our trajectory, who can change the brokenness in the world. And again, this is a good thing to pray for, a good thing to desire, but our hope is in God who is the king of kings and the ruler of all nations. Or maybe on a personal level, when life gets overwhelming, you, what do you run to as a way of escape? Maybe you have hope that a job or a relationship or a move will solve your problem. Whatever it is that has you looking elsewhere for hope, God is the one true hope for you in the midst of troubles and fears and darkness. But this is tough, right? It's, it's hard to trust God. It's hard to trust God when we don't know what's going on, when we don't see a way forward, when we're not sure what's happening. We wrestle with fear, with doubt, with uncertainty. And it's okay, right? It's okay to wrestle and grapple with God. He's, he's not afraid of this. He wants us to, to press into him. But what we can't do in this wrestling is to turn away from God and to look to other things for hope. It's in these moments of darkness and uncertainty that we need God the most. But what, what should the Israelites have done, or what should we do in these moments? How can we press into God more when things look dark? I think the, the Psalms offer us a, a multitude of examples of this. It seems like the psalmists are, are repeatedly find themselves in dark places, um, in times where they're struggling, wondering where in the world God is. And Psalm 77, it's, it's one of my favorite psalms, um, and I think it actually illustrates this, this really well, um, what it looks like to, to press into God in moments of darkness and uncertainty. So start, Psalm 77, starting in verse 2, says, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. The psalmist is trying to seek God in his day of trouble, in his dark night of the soul, in that place of, of darkness and fear and uncertainty. But even after stretching his hand out to God all night long, he's still not comforted. He still doesn't seek God. He still doesn't know where he is or what he's up to. I think in these moments, I think we're all tempted to give up, to look, to look somewhere else, to disbelieve God and to try to find hope and other things. But look at what the psalmist does next, down in verse 7. It's this string of questions. He says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be faithful? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? He's honest and raw with how he's feeling. And he takes his struggles directly to God and wrestles with them. These are, these are the questions of somebody who's at the end of their rope, who doesn't know where to look. And God's not afraid of these questions. But verse 10, I think, it gives us some good resolution. The psalmist says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. The psalmist move is not to run from God, but to continue to press in, to remember what God has already done, to remember how God has always been faithful to his people. So when we find ourselves like the psalmist here, or like the Israelites in 1 Samuel, when we're faced with troubles that cause us to fear and to doubt God, the solution isn't to look elsewhere for hope and deliverance, but to cast ourselves even more fully upon God, 
on his promises, on his mighty works, on his faithfulness in the past. No matter how dark or impossible the situation looks in front of you, God is with you in it. And he is the sure and stable hope that you need. Samuel reminds both Israel and us that God has been a faithful king. Throughout the centuries, he's proven himself trustworthy. Not only in the ways listed in this passage, but most of all through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to us and took upon himself the full weight of human sin and shame and brokenness. And by his death and resurrection, broke the power and the bondage of sin and shame and brokenness that had over us. In Jesus, we can be even more certain than Samuel was that God has been the faithful king who provides for his people. In the midst of our sufferings and doubts and fears, God alone is the one place we can run to with certainty that we won't be let down. God has been the faithful king. So after reminding them first of all of God's faithfulness in the past, Samuel or that God has been faithful, Samuel brings them into the present and makes the second point. His second point is that God, has, or God is still the faithful king. God is still the faithful king. And we see this in, in 13 through 19. Even with this no, new king put in place for the Israelites, God is still their real king. He takes them back to the covenant that God made with them at Sinai after he had brought their fathers out of Egypt. He reminds them of the terms and the conditions of the covenant that he'd made through Moses, and he makes it abundantly clear to them that even, even with this king in place, God is still their king. Check out verses 14 and 15. Twice in those verses, it says, both you and your king. Both you and your king. Both the people and the king are still under the covenant, which places God as king above them. They think oh, we have a king now, this is going to change everything, everything's going to be so much better. But nothing's really changed, nothing's different. The people and their king are still under the kingship of God. Both the king and the people must be primarily concerned about their faithfulness to God. Their safety and provision still ultimately rest upon God, not upon this new king. Their hope must still be in God. He can't, the king can't save them, the king can't do anything particularly for them. It's still about God. And verse 25 at the end, it reminds us this as well, that there's consequences for unfaithfulness. If they reject God, if they turn from him, Samuel has to know it's not going to end well. And it actually foreshadows the exile of Israel into Babylon that's going to come hundreds of years later because the, their people and their kings were continually unfaithful to God because they ignored his prophets and despised his word. So having a king to rule over them, over them, it doesn't actually change anything. They're still under the covenant. They still have God as their king. And in all of this, Samuel's showing them that the biggest threat isn't some foreign army or some force out there, but it's right in here. It's their own unfaithfulness to God that will get them in trouble. Their hearts, just like ours, are prone to wander from God and to chase after other things. And Samuel tells them that their focus must be on keeping their hearts true to God. They can't export this responsibility to a king or to a leader or to a pastor. It's up to the people to take ownership for themselves and remain faithful to God. This reminds me of a, of a famous story about G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a great Christian writer and, and thinker in the 20th century. Um, a newspaper in his, in his hometown in London was asking people this question, this simple question. What's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? And I think we would all easily come up with half a dozen or a dozen answers to that. 
and people then could easily as well. But Chesterton's answer to this question stands out above the rest. When asked what's wrong with the world today, his response was simply, I am. I am. Our biggest threat isn't some issue out there, but it's right in here. It's the deceitful nature of our own hearts. And Samuel warns us that the biggest threat isn't enemies or dark circumstances, but the waywardness of our own hearts, prone to wander away from our faithful God. Up to this point in our text, the people don't seem to have grasped the severity of what they've done. They've been listening to Samuel, kind of like listening to what he has to say, but they still seem pretty proud of of this king that they've installed. And Samuel's using some harsh language. He's been laying it on them, you know, saying they've committed this great wickedness, this great evil. But they still don't seem to get it. And so Samuel uses this sign from God to grab their attention. He wants them to see that with their eyes who they've rejected in asking for this king. And so he calls down this sign of thunder and rain, and it, it produces the intended effect on the people. Um, I'm assuming this wasn't during the spring we've just had, because if I were to call down rain and thunder, I don't think any of you would be impressed. You would probably be mad at me and, and run me off. But it seems to work for them. They're impressed. It rains, it thunders, um, and, and they seem to finally get what Samuel's been getting at. The sign from God finally wakes them up. It rouses them from their slumber. It grabs their attention. And they seem to realize the magnitude of what they've done in asking for a king and in rejecting God when they needed him the most. They realize their divine amnesia. And they respond, as we see in verse 19, with repentance. They confess their sins against God, and to their credit, although they're slow, they do repent. They recognize that they've rejected God, that he's not, he wasn't just once trustworthy, but he still is. They recognize that they had rejected their faithful king, that he was faithful, that he is still faithful. And so they repent, they confess, confess their sins to God, and they ask for help. And this should be our response when we recognize or are shown that, that we've turned from God and placed our hope in other things. When we put our hope elsewhere besides God, we have to confess that to him. And he desires that our hope and our trust be in him alone, not in any other hope that our eyes or hearts might tell us is better. God is still the faithful king. He desires for us to return to him and place our hope in him even after we've turned away. Maybe this morning you're not sure about all this. You're, you're not sure about this claim of God being faithful or um, you're not sure if he really can be trusted. Well, there's two, two witnesses that I have to offer you this morning if you're investigating this, if you're still seeking to discover God's faithfulness. First, there's, there's this book, the Bible, that we talk about a lot here. Um, we've been going through this series. We, we consistently preach God's word here. And so this is basically a record of God's faithfulness given in his word on a large scale, um, which climaxes in the, in the story of the resurrection of Jesus as the king and ruler of all. But in addition to the Bible, there's the, the lives of each of us here who are followers of Jesus. We all have stories in our own lives where we've seen God be faithful to us in a variety of ways. I think anyone here would be able to tell you, if you ask them, how they've seen God be their faithful king in their life, in their stories. And so these are two good witnesses we have to this claim. We have the scripture, and we have our own stories. So if you're investigating this, I'd encourage you to, to check either of these out, to ask someone to continue, or to read your Bible. 
But this repentance, it, it marks another transition point in the text. The people, they repent of their sin against God. And then Samuel moves kind of into his third and final point. So after telling them that God has been faithful in the past, that God is still their king in the present, he moves into his third point, which is an exhortation. Be faithful to the faithful king. Be faithful to the faithful king. And we see this in verse 20 through the end. Samuel's response to the people's repentance, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's the pure gospel that he gives them. He says, you have done all this evil. You've done this. You're right to confess. This was, this was really bad. You really messed up. You've done a foolish thing. It's really strong language. But look at what he says next. He doesn't say, well, you know, good luck getting back on God's good side. You know, good luck with that. No, he says in verse 22, the Lord will not forsake his people. You have done this evil, but the Lord will not forsake his people. He will remain true to his promises, true to his word, true to his covenant. You can take it to the bank. And not only that, but I'm not going to stop praying for you. God will not forsake you, and I won't stop praying for you. God will be faithful. He will keep his promises. Even if they've, they've messed up in this, in this bad way, God will not fail them, even though they've failed God. He has been, he is, and he will be faithful. And with this gospel foundation in mind, he, he undergirding the whole structure of his argument here, he calls the people to then be faithful to God. In verse 20, he says, Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Serve God with all your heart, with all of your inner being, with all of your deepest self. Keep your heart true to him. Keep your heart faithful to God alone. And do not turn aside, he says, after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. He uses this word empty twice in this verse. Empty things that are empty. Don't turn aside from God and chase down those things. Don't turn aside from God who is fullness and life and abundance and flourishing because apart from God, you're chasing emptiness. You're chasing nothing. And hearing it described this way, you might think, well, who's going to chase after empty things? Who's, who, would, who would spend their time pursuing something that would gain them nothing? You know, buy one, get one free. Buy nothing, get emptiness for free. It's, it's not really a good marketing scheme, right? But this is where the problem comes in, because the things that Samuel calls nothingness, they don't exactly market themselves that way. They masquerade around as being valuable or fulfilling, being places where true life and meaning can be found. And this is one of our enemy's favorite tactics. You can think of it like someone sneaking into a jewelry store and switching around the price tags after hours so that things that are cheap are now tagged as valuable and the things that are valuable are now tagged as cheap. And so when you come in the next morning and you're looking at this necklace that says, oh, it's only $25, it must, it must not be the real thing. And it turns out it's the $10,000 necklace. Right? You have no way to know what's cheap and what's valuable. And this is what the enemy does. He switches the price tags. He takes things that are deep and meaningful and valuable, and he advertises them as cheap and inexpensive, while at the same time taking things that are cheap and making them seem valuable and prized. And sin distorts our ability to perceive what's truly valuable and what's truly empty. You can think of it like the Chronicles of Narnia, which uh, I know Brandon gives to you a lot, but I thought this was a great example. So, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's a familiar scene. Um, Edmund's on the sleigh with the witch, and the witch is offering him the Turkish delight. Um, and he's so hungry, 
he goes for it, he's eating it, it promises that it would, you know, satiate his hunger, that he'd be full, but what happens? If you're familiar with the story, you know it, it doesn't fill him up, it doesn't satisfy him. It actually makes him more insatiable. The more he eats, the more he wants. There's no satisfaction. Maybe you've experienced this before. Finally, finally getting that thing that you've really wanted or that you thought would, would really make your life better, make your life complete, but then finding out not long after you've had it that it still doesn't satisfy your deepest longing. Things really don't change that much. Samuel tells us not to turn from God and chase after things that are empty. And these can be things like wealth, relationships, power, prestige, success, even education. And don't hear me wrong, these things aren't inherently bad. God often blesses us with these things, and he wants us to use them for, for good, for his glory. But at the core of each of these things, on their own, apart from God, there's no true and lasting life in them. They promise fulfillment. They promise to give us everything that we lack. But in the end, apart from God, these things are empty. They get, them nowhere. They get us nowhere as ends in themselves. When our hope is in them and the things that they promise to deliver instead of in God, that's when we're chasing after emptiness. And Samuel exhorts them and us not to turn aside after these things and other empty things that, depart, that make us depart from being faithful to our faithful God. But these temptations and distractions, they won't stop. There'll always be something pulling at us, always be something tugging at us to swerve from God. But we must seek to remain faithful to that which is truly life, which is true hope, true fullness. And we can stay the course, we can stay true to God because we know for certain that he will not forsake us, that he has been faithful, especially through Christ, that he is the one and only hope, the one and only faithful king. So in his conclusion, Samuel gives a final summary exhortation to them as their old leader, giving way to their new leader. Verse 24, he says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Fear God, serve him faithfully with all your heart. Why? Because of all the great things he's done for you. Our motivation and our empowerment to follow God come from the reality of God's faithfulness to us. We're able to be faithful to God because he's been faithful to us. Samuel's final exhortation to fear God, serve him faithfully, remember his faithfulness to you, is to be faithful to the faithful king, to put your hope in him always, to keep your hearts true to him. So his conclusion keeps the focus on God, not on the new king. This new king's not going to save them. True hope isn't found in human leaders. But instead, both the people and their leaders, both the church and its pastors, must fear God and remain faithful to him with the entirety of their heart and soul. God has done great things for them and will continue to be faithful to his people. And out of this sure and steadfast truth, the people can be faithful to their God who is faithful. So may we not be like the Israelites, whose hearts turned away from God and sought hope in what they could see, but instead, let us set our hope on God alone, not in empty things that cannot satisfy. Let us fear God, serve him faithfully, and remember his faithfulness to us. God has been the faithful king. He is still the faithful king. He will be the faithful king. Let's be faithful to our faithful king. Let's pray.
Lord, we're so thankful for your faithfulness to us. We're thankful that, that you've made this clear throughout your word, especially through your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we can see your faithfulness in our stories and in our lives and the ways that you've provided for us. Pray that you would help us to continue to press into you when things look bleak and we don't know where you are, that we would continue to press into you, that we would remember your faithfulness to us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you.